Every week, I, practically every day, I go to the post office. And every week, I get mail. And every week, I look at the mail I get, and, and they always come. There are these letters that come. Sometimes they're addressed to us. Sometimes they're addressed with our names. Sometimes they have our names misspelled. And sometimes letters come and they say, Occupant. Do you get any letters addressed to occupant? Do you ever get those? Yeah, you get those too? And sometimes they look tricky. I mean, they look like real envelopes and it looks like real mail. And sometimes on the outside of the envelope, they'll write things like, urgent, time-sensitive material, open immediately. And so I hurry up and I open it up and it's what? What do we call it? It's junk mail. It's junk. The sender doesn't know us. The sender's probably not even a real person and they don't care about us. We're not on their hearts or on their minds and all they want is money from us. A couple of weeks ago though, it was my birthday. And so the week of my birthday, I went to the same post office that junk mail comes, but for several days in a row, I would open the box and inside the box I found wonderful surprises. Cards from my friends. Many of them from you. And because the, the sender knew me in those, the, that sent those cards, they knew my heart, there was relationship there. A lot of them had little sentiments and little comments made there. And some of them even contained gifts, which was nice. But it was very obvious that the senders knew me. They knew my heart. We had a relationship. We have a relationship. And so those letters are not junk. And while junk mail gets thrown away, I mean, we... File 13, that right away. I hold on to those for a while and I open those cards up again and again and I read through those. So when we approach the seven letters we find in Revelation 2 and 3, we immediately realize these are not junk mail. The sender knows these people. He knows these churches. He knows their hearts. He knows their needs. He knows their fears and their failings. And because the sender knows them, we can also know that the sender knows us. And because he knows us, we read these letters, these seven letters, we read them with an ear to hear what he says to us. What he might have to say. We hear Jesus' heart in these letters. We see what he desires for his church. We also see what he does not want for his church. And so working through them, we get this picture of what Jesus calls us to be as a church. Again, we're looking at Revelation 2, verses 8-11. through 11. This is the letter to the church in Smyrna. Nobody knows who planted the church in Smyrna. Nobody has any idea. There's, there's no record that tells us where this church came from. It's, Smyrna itself is about 40 miles north of Ephesus. And it's possible that some Christians from Ephesus took a walk and they went up to Smyrna and they planted a church. We don't know where it came from, but there was a church there in Smyrna. Smyrna was a big city, again, about 40 miles north of Ephesus, about 200,000 people in the city of Smyrna. That's a, that's a pretty big city. You know, maybe, maybe you were taught like I was. Early on, I was taught <clears throat> that the seven letters to the seven churches there in Revelation that those seven letters actually stood for seven different eras of church history. You ever heard that? That the seven letters stand for seven different eras of church history? 
And so I was taught early on, I mean, this was in the back of one of my Bibles. There was a whole page that explained this. And if it was in the Bible, it must have been right. But I was taught that the church began in, on Pentecost and we were a lot like the church in Ephesus. We had a lot of good things going on, but early on we forgot our first love. And then we come to the church in Smyrna. And the church in Smyrna represents that age of persecution during the early days when the Romans were persecuting the church. But that the church ages would progress like those seven letters until finally, right before Christ came, we would all be like the church in Laodicea. We would be fallen away. You ever, you ever heard that? I believe that. I taught that for a long time. There's a couple of problems with it. First of all, the big problem is that the Bible never says that. <laughs> Instead, what the Bible tells us is there were seven churches in Asia that Jesus wrote these letters to. That's what the Bible tells us. There were seven letters to, to seven churches. Another problem with that belief, though, has been <clears throat> everyone who's ever taught it <clears throat> has believed that they are living in the age of Laodicea. <laughs> everyone who's ever taught that has believed that they are living in that last age, the age of Laodicea. And that's that's, a, that's kind of a difficulty because we, we tend to want to, to be right there at the very end of things. The other problem though also is if Smyrna represents the age of oppression and the age of tribulation and the age of persecution, then we've got a problem. Because there are more Christians being persecuted today than there ever were in those early centuries. 95% of everyone who gets persecuted or martyred for their faith, 95% of all the people today who are martyred for their faith are Christians. There are more Christians being martyred in our day than there have been in all the centuries previously. So somehow we are still stuck in that age of Smyrna. But more to the point, this letter has something to say to us going through struggles. Whether it's the persecution that Christians are facing worldwide, or whether it's just the day-in and day-out struggles that you and I experience and the difficulties that we experience. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what this letter says. Beginning in verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna writes the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I think the first thing that Jesus is trying to get across to this church is something that we need to understand for ourselves. And that is this. Do not confuse suffering with punishment. Do not confuse suffering with punishment. Now the church, this letter to the church in Smyrna is very unique in some interesting ways. One of the ways that this, church is, that this letter is unique is there's no rebuke. There's no rebuke for this letter. Do you remember last week we looked at Ephesus? And Jesus had a rebuke for the church in Ephesus. In chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, but I have this against you. Boy, if Jesus ever says, I have something against you, you probably ought to pay attention to it, right? 
If Jesus says, you know, Jesus is your friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. For God so loved the world. But then he says, but I got this against you. Whoa, pay attention. Listen up. What's he got to say? And he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That was their rebuke. Smyrna has no rebuke. Jesus has nothing against them. And that is wonderful. There's only two churches in these seven that Jesus has no rebuke for. Smyrna is one of them. But look what He does say about them. He says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They were going through difficult times. They were going through tribulation. They were struggling. And it would be very easy for them to think of their suffering as a rebuke from God, that their suffering was punishment from God, that their suffering was judgment from God. We do that. We do that, don't we? We get sick. We have a wreck. We, uh, we go through some financial struggles. Something doesn't work our way. Things, things seem to be falling apart. We get bad news from the doctor, maybe bad news for ourselves or bad news for someone we love. And what do we immediately ask? What did I do to deserve this? We immediately think, God has it out for me. I have ticked God off somehow. I miss church one too many Sundays. I didn't put enough money in the generous bucket. That's why I'm going through this. Or, God heard me say that word in front of the kids last week. You know what? What is it? You know I've done something to make God mad, and so we try to find reason for our suffering. And in our search for reason, we come up with punishment. I must have done something wrong. I must be a bad person, and I deserve this. And so it's important for us to see what Jesus tells this church that is suffering. He says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. First of all, I want to remind you, he uses that, those words again. I know. Every letter he's going to say, I know. It is intimate language. He knows intimately who they are. He knows their pain. And he points to three types of suffering here. He says, first of all, you've got tribulations. And those are Horrible, horrible sufferings. I mean, the worst things that could happen, tribulations. Some of your Bibles say afflictions. It's the same word he uses again in verse 10. He also points to their poverty. They are probably poor because of their faith in Christ. Because Smyrna was a center of pagan worship. They had a big temple there to worship the, the emperor. I've told you last week about emperor worship. That was a big deal. And if you did not participate in pagan worship, you and I in Smyrna, we would be considered atheists because we didn't participate in the things that they did. We didn't worship the way they did. We'd be called atheists. And we would be attacked for that. And our property would be taken away from us. And our possessions would be taken away from us. In addition to that, if you were a tradesman, you were a carpenter or a craftsman or you had some skill and you were trying to practice your trade, you would be expected to be a part of the trade guild. And as a member of the trade guild, you would have to worship the false gods of that trade guild. And if you didn't, your business would be blackballed. No one would come to your business because you were not a part of that trade guild. So yes, they are probably poor. He also points to slander as part of their suffering. 
slander. People were saying false things about them. By the way, not to get off the topic, but anytime this comes up in the Bible, I like to remind you of it. Did you notice where slander comes from here? He says of their slander, he says there in verse 9, slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You notice where slander comes from? It comes from the devil. It comes from Satan. Devil, the word devil means slanderer. It means accuser. Jesus calls the devil the father of lies. And I will remind you again for no particular reason at all, but when you slander someone, when you speak ill of someone, when you gossip about someone, when you talk bad about someone, whose work are you doing? Slander is never associated with God. It is never associated with Christ. It is never associated with the Holy Spirit. Instead, it is always associated with Satan. That's a freebie. Now, back to our regularly scheduled meeting. What Jesus is confirming for them, and what He's confirming for us, is that pain is not punishment. Pain is not punishment. We, we forget that. We forget that a lot. And we've got to get a grip on that. If we miss that, if we miss that pain is not punishment, in reality, what we're missing is Jesus. We miss Jesus if we think that pain is punishment. Isaiah 53. Everybody loves Isaiah 53. Isaiah wrote this chapter about 600 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah 53 shows us this incredible picture of Jesus as the suffering servant. Isaiah lays out exactly who Jesus is going to be, what He's going to be like, and, and he goes on and on about, about the, the suffering that he's going to go through and what kind of death he's going to die. Isaiah 53, he perfectly describes Jesus. And in Isaiah 53, verse 5, Isaiah says, the punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. Let me read it again. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. Do you believe that? You believe? Give me an amen. Come on. You can do it. Can I get an amen? Yeah, thank you. There you go. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. So, do you deserve punishment or not? Have you done something that deserves punishment or not? Here's the problem. If you think that God punishes you when you mess up, then Jesus isn't enough for you. If you think that God punishes you when you mess up, then Jesus is not enough for you. Either Jesus took all of our punishment or He didn't. And if you have to suffer because Jesus' suffering on the cross wasn't enough, then we got a problem. You see that problem? Do you understand? Give me a nod. Let me know you're with me. Alright, good. I'll knock five minutes off the sermon just for that. <laughs> Not really. Anyway, either Jesus took all your punishment or He didn't. So, you see, this is less about understanding the problem of pain and it is more about understanding Jesus. Don't, don't concentrate on your suffering. Concentrate on your Savior. And with that in mind, what Jesus is showing us here is that trials are going to come and we have to decide what we're going to do with them. Trials will come. We have to decide what we're going to do with them. Look again, one more time, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Do you notice what he says in the midst of that? I know your tribulations, and I know your poverty, 
but you are rich. They couldn't see that. The pain that they were in, the suffering that they were going through, that blinded them to the reality. It blinded them to the blessing that they were loved, they are forgiven, they are saved, and they are together. They have hope, but they couldn't see that because of their pain. They couldn't see that. And there's times we can't see that either. There's times we get a bad self-image. Sometimes we have a bad self-image and we don't think much of ourselves and we think we deserve all the bad stuff that comes our way. Well, I'm not a good person. I'm not very good at this. And sometimes we complain. We think, well, I can't do anything very well. You know, I might as well suffer. People do that. You know, churches do that too. I talk to leadership of a lot of churches and I meet with other preachers. And you know what I see? I don't just see bad self-image in individuals. I see churches with bad self-images. I see churches that say, well, we're not a very good church. We're kind of a bad church. You know, we, we don't have much going on. We don't have very many people. and We're kind of poor. You know, we, we don't have a whole lot going on. Wake up! Jesus says you are rich. You have so much going on for you. And, and so do you guys. The fact is, this is a fallen and broken world and troubles are going to come. So what are we going to do when troubles come? Last year, I preached on 1 Peter. We went through all the way through 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter reminds us that we have this amazing inheritance. And he says this inheritance that we have, it is imperishable. It is unfading. It is perfect. It is forever. But the problem is, it is kept in heaven for you. So your inheritance is not here. You get to have it later. So what do you get here? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter said, now for a little while, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, your faith is more precious than gold that perishes. Gold perishes even though it's tested by fire. But the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your inheritance is set. You get heaven. But here and now, you're going to have troubles. And he says, hold on, because those troubles refine your faith. And in the end, you'll be stronger, you'll be more sure of your faith, you'll be more firm in your hope. Jesus wanted, He warns the church in Smyrna. He warns them, you think it's tough now. You think you're having a difficult time now. Just you wait and see what's next. He says in verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer, what you are about to suffer. He says, behold, the devil is going to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for ten, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Behold, you will be tested for ten days. Immediately, their minds went back to Daniel when they heard that. Maybe you're thinking of Daniel too if you know your Old Testament, if you studied your Old Testament. Daniel chapter 1, Daniel is taken to live in the palace of the king of Babylon. And he's got all these wonderful things, but one of the things that they give him is they give him the food, they give him the king's food, and it's food that has been sacrificed to idols. It's animals that they have killed and laid on the altar of false gods. And Daniel says, I can't eat that because that will pollute me. That will make me unclean. I will not eat that. So instead, Daniel says, I want to live on nothing but vegetables and water. What a boring guy Daniel was. He says, I'm going to eat nothing but vegetables and water. And you test me for 10 days. 
And at the end, you don't see if I'm in better shape than all those other guys. Now, thankfully, the lesson of Daniel's diet is not about diet, it's about faithfulness. It's about God's faithfulness. The lesson there is not about diet, it's about faithfulness. It's about standing firm in the face of trials. And he says trials are going to come. Just like Daniel, you're going to be tested for 10 days, but you're going to come out better. Trials are going to come. What are we going to do with them? Are we going to crumble or are we going to remain faithful? The call of this letter is to recognize God's presence in our suffering and the challenges of life and to see these as opportunities for us to grow in the image of Christ. We don't get a choice about suffering. You know, that's true of persecution. That's true of persecution that's going on in our world. That's true of slander. You don't get a choice of whether or not people are going to slander you. That's true of the trials we go through. It's also true of the illnesses we face and, and, and the poverty we face, a lot of the physical troubles we suffer. The choice is what are we going to do with them? You are going to encounter troubles. You're going to encounter troubles. Make sure you encounter Christ first. Each of these letters begins with a different picture of Jesus. Every one of them describes Jesus in a different way. By the way, every one of those descriptions comes from chapter 1. There's an amazing consistency to how this is written. But each letter begins with a picture of Jesus that is personal and specific to that church. Ephesus. You remember Ephesus? The picture of Jesus was He who holds the seven stars in His right hand. And there in Ephesus, the emperor had struck a coin. He had minted a coin in Ephesus with an image of His Son holding seven stars in His right hand. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's the false one. I'm the real one. I got the seven stars in my right hand. That was the image we used in that was used for Ephesus. So we come to Smyrna, and how does Jesus describe Himself to Smyrna? He says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Smyrna was a big city. 200,000 people. But there had been a time in their history when they almost died. It became a ghost town. The town dried up and people moved out and people went away and Smyrna had almost died. But they rose again. The city identified itself with the phoenix. Remember the story of the phoenix? Not Arizona. The old one. You know, the bird that comes up out of the ashes. The bird that rises up out of the fire. That's how they saw themselves. And so when Jesus addresses them, He says, I know what it's like to die. I know what it's like to suffer. But I also know the glory that comes afterwards. You're suffering now, but know the glory that comes afterwards. He knows your pain. He knows your hearts. And so you can trust Him. You can trust His call for you. There are two commands found in this letter. Both of them are found in verse 10. Both commands are written in what is called present imperative, Nancy. And in present imperative, let me give you just a little bit of a grammar lesson. Here's how you read a present imperative. Every time the need comes for you to do this, do it! There's never going to be a time when you change the command. Every time the need arises to do it, do it. That's how you handle a present imperative. Two of them are found in verse 10. First of all, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is, going, is about to throw some of you 
into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The first command, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Actually, the way it's written, it actually says, stop being afraid. He, he knows their hearts. He knows that they are already afraid and things are about to get worse. So he says, stop being afraid. <clears throat> the other command is, be faithful unto death. Now you realize, he's just warned them that some of them are going to prison. What you need to understand is that prison in their culture is not like prison in our culture. Prison in their culture was not like prison in our culture. Prison in our culture is punitive. You know what punitive means? It means it's punishment. That means if you do the crime, you have to do the time. See, you guys got this down. If you do the crime, you do the time. And depending on your crime, you get different time, right? You might get six months. You might get six weeks. You might get two years. You might get life. And you might get parole if you're good and you have good behavior. That's not how prison worked back then. Instead, prison is where you were held until your trial. And then, prison is where you were held until your execution. So, to say that they are going to prison is not to say, you're going to get three hots and a cot, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. No, he's saying some of you are going to die. Some of you are going to have to be faithful unto death. Prisons or not, trials or tribulation or not, these don't change the call. The call is every time you need this, you do this. You be faithful. You do not fear. And you take that as far as it has to go. So what's that look like for you and me? What's that look like today? What's that look like where we live? What's that look like in our lives and with our own trials? What does do not fear look like for us? You know where it has to start? It has to start where it started last week. It has to start with that warning to the church in Ephesus. You have abandoned the love you had at first. We have to start there when we look at these letters and when we look at these calls to the committed church. We have to start with love. John also wrote a letter about three years before he wrote Revelation. John wrote a letter to his friends. We call it 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says this. Listen to this. John says in 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love. You've forsaken. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Do not be afraid. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Why? Fear has to do with punishment. Wait, what? Fear has to do with punishment? Are we being punished or was the punishment that brought us peace upon Him? Right? Remember that? Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You see, the call is not to put your attention on the trial or the test or the pain you're going through, but to know that God loves you and to fall in love with Him in return. The call is to be faithful to Him even as He is faithful to you. About 60 years 
after Revelation was written. There was a man from Smyrna. About 60 years after Revelation was written, there was a man from Smyrna, and his name was Polycarp. Go ahead, laugh at his name. I'm sure they did too. Sounds like a plastic fish. Polycarp, right? Maybe it's just me. Polycarp was the bishop in Smyrna. He was the head of the church in Smyrna. John himself was a friend and a teacher of Polycarp. Polycarp had learned everything he knew from John. In fact, John and the other apostles that were still alive at that time, the leaders of the church, they appointed Polycarp to be bishop, to be the head of the church in Smyrna. About 60 years after this letter was written in 155 A.D., Polycarp was, he was 86 years old. 86 years old. He had served Christ all his life. Everyone knew him. Everyone knew he was the bishop. Everyone knew he was the, the guy from the church there in Smyrna. He had served Christ his entire life. 86 years. And at 86 years old, the Romans finally came for him. He was an old man. And they came looking for him. They wanted to put him to death. And Polycarp was scared. And at first, he ran. He left his home and he went and hid in another house there in Smyrna. He went and hid. And, and at first he was fine, but the Romans found a couple of the young men from the, from the church there in Smyrna, and they tortured those young men until they told him where Polycarp was. And so he knew that his time was short. He knew he couldn't run forever. And so when the soldiers came to arrest him, it was a Friday night, by the way, Friday evening, Soldiers came to arrest him. Polycarp opened the door of the house he was hiding in. And he had made dinner for them. And he said, come on in. Sit down. Eat dinner. Give me one hour to go pray. And then I'll go with you. And they apparently were hungry. More than anything, they were impressed at the character of this man. And the, the, uh, the hope that this man had. They were very impressed with his character. They hated to arrest him. They had to do it. And so they came in, they sat down, and they ate. Polycarp went and he prayed for an hour, came back out and said, okay, let's go. And they took him to his death. Think about that. Some of you are going through some tough stuff. You've got trials. And you've got tribulations. You've got your sufferings. There's things that I know about that you're going through because I'm your preacher and because I'm your friend. There's other things you're going through that only you and God know about. Those pains that you've got. Those wounds that are very, very deep. Let me say this. There may come a day when instead of running from your pain, you have to make dinner for it. (laughs) There may come a day when instead of running from that pain, you have to make dinner for it. When instead of running, instead of hiding, instead of blaming and instead of hurting back you learn what it means to simply live with it now that's that's not giving up and that's not giving in rather it's because you no longer fear it because you've become so in love with your savior that there is no more fear be faithful unto death and he will give you the crown of Let's stand together and we're going to pray. Father, I'm so thankful that we have a Savior who knows us. He knows our struggles. He knows our pain. 
He knows the hurts that have been inflicted on us. Father, all those nights that we've cried out, why me? Why now? Why this hurts? We realize that those nights we put our attention on ourselves and on our pain and not on our Savior. Not on the One who knows us. And so help us to fall so in love with Your Son that we find peace in our pain. Help us in our fear. Help us to hold on and remain faithful. We thank You for Your faithfulness to us. Faithfulness that took Your Son Jesus to the cross. And it's in His name, in the name of the One who died and came to life that we pray. Amen.